The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. My name is Mara Cunningham, and I'm a program officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I'm speaking today with Jeremy Wallace, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Ohio State University. Jeremy is also a fellow in the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. He and I will discuss Jeremy's new book, Cities and Stability, Urbanization, Redistribution, and Regime Survival in China, which was recently published by Oxford University Press. Jeremy, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today about your book. Thanks for having me. First, I'd like to ask, one of the key questions that political scientists are examining today is how the Chinese Communist Party has managed to stay in power for 65 years. And you argue that this is due, at least in part, to the party's uh, managed urbanization policies. So could you explain how you think cities have played a role in the endurance of the CCP regime? It's a a good question. That is the kind of core question of the book. The the way that I got into this um, was that I went to China for my dissertation research, and I heard this expression that the Chinese government was scared of Latin Americanization. And that idea was was perplexing to me. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what they were scared of or what they were thinking about. And the more I investigated, the more that I found that they were worried about the kind of slums and high levels of inequality that Latin American countries have, and that they were worried that China would increasingly be along those lines, and that would be dangerous for the regime. And it would be dangerous not just because um, Latin American countries are bad in some way, but that kind of slums and large cities that that characterize Latin American countries Um, are dangerous for political regimes. And if you do look cross-nationally, Latin American countries and dictatorships do not last like other countries and other parts of the world. And so this seemed to be interesting. And in particular, this was interesting because one of the things that we know in political science, and we don't know that much, one of the things that we thought we knew was that, well, cities are dangerous, and so countries spend money on cities. And this is how you kind of go about stabilizing a country. And that makes sense, and yet one of the things that I was hearing about in China was that China was abolishing agricultural taxes. And so I was having trouble initially kind of putting together fear of big cities and abolishing agricultural taxes. It it, it seemed very counterintuitive and puzzling, and I think what I came around to was finding that, well, by abolishing agricultural taxes, they were trying to aid in the development of kind of rural areas and keeping people in the countryside, not by the plan that they had used of the hukou system, but increasingly just kind of incentivizing people to stay. And so that's a long answer to a simple question, but it's, um, that's, that's how I got started in this. I thought it was interesting. You began the book with an epigraph, a quote from a 17th century philosopher, Gu Yanwu, who wrote that, he said, when the masses dwell in villages, order prevails. When the masses flock to cities, disorder ensues. And I think most people who read the American press know that the Chinese Communist Party is intently focused on preventing disorder. Mm -hmm. And yet they've also, you know, China has some of the most populous cities in the world. So if large cities are such a threat to public order, why has the Chinese government permitted and in many cases even encouraged this kind of large-scale urbanization? I think I I include that quote at the beginning, one, because it's it's just a fun quote. Whenever you see someone making essentially your argument 300 years ago, you you have to include it if you find it. And also because I think there is this pervasive sense in China and China studies that 
that rural areas are what are dangerous. And in particular, there is this Mao quote that is kind of very famous, a single spark starts a prairie fire. And I think that's true. A single spark can start a prairie fire, but you're much more likely to start a, a large fire if you have lots of sparks together. And so cities are dangerous. And the argument about why the Chinese government has allowed large cities, I think it's actually kind of a little bit backwards because the Chinese government has allowed these cities, but in fact has controlled their size much more than the Indian government or other countries. And in fact, China has a much more kind of spread out urban system than we would expect all else equal, absent the hukou system, absent its management of urbanization. These large cities would be even larger and even more populated with uh, populations that have not done well by the reforms. And so, yes, you have large cities, and those are, of course, dangerous, but these large cities are actually kind of much tamer than they would have been otherwise. So to look back a few decades, the Chinese Communist Party really came to power as the party of the peasantry, like you were just saying. So how did the government approach cities in the 1950s? How did some of the current policies come about? And over the decades, how has it balanced the interests of the cities and the countryside? Yeah. This is a peasant party, right? This is a, the Mao came to power, Mao and the Chinese Communist Party came to power on the backs of peasant support, and I think that really is true. But even before they came into power, Mao was already saying that we have to shift our focus towards the cities. And I think that they actually see that in policy, that they were focused on a Soviet type of model of development, focusing on heavy industry in cities, and paying for those factories were, were agricultural taxes and thus uh, fundamentally farmers. And so those agricultural taxes and farmers realized that they were paying kind of to this burden, this fiscal burden, and that in order to, the benefits were going to these urbanites. And so by the millions you had farmers seeing, well, why, why should I put up with this and why not move to the city? Um, and so what you actually saw in the Chinese kind of case was that the regime increasingly begins to deal, like, see this problem. What are we going to do with all these farmers who are in our cities? These blind flows, Manglio, uh, of farmers into our cities, we're going to stop them. And so they developed the, the hukou system in the 50s in order to kind of control this population flow. You were just talking about yeah. the hukou system, so I want to turn our attention to that. So in, in recent years, the hukou system has created a large population of sort of second-tier or second-class city dwellers who are migrants from the countryside who come in to find jobs, and they come to the city to work, but they never become true urban residents. They can't take advantage of social, uh, social benefits. And this two-tiered system has the potential to create a lot of resentment, which I think the government knows. And in recent years, they've moved toward a relaxation of the hukou system in certain places, um, so could you explain some of these reforms and describe how far you think they'll go? Yeah. I think that this, this system of kind of migration restrictions and the hukou system is essentially about separating peoples based on where they're born. And so you have rural people who are different than urban people, and they don't have rural people, when they move to large cities, don't have access to social services, as you said. And I think that from the 1990s onward, there have been relaxations of this hukou reform. I mean, it used to be the case that you couldn't move to cities because the only way to buy food was with food coupons that were only good in your locality. And so if you moved, even if you had the money, you wouldn't be able to buy food. Now, with the planned economy kind of disintegrated, you can move, but you don't get access to social services. And the reforms kind of increasingly have been up from smaller cities to larger cities. So it's OK to move to a, a small city but yet at the largest cities, and in fact, there's a, a new reform that just came out, the state council put out that we're going to get rid of, the, the headlines come out as we're going to get rid of the hukou system. It's always abolishing the hukou system. 
But the, if you actually look at the text of the State Council document, it continues to say, for the largest cities, we're going to strictly control the population and scope of the largest cities. And I think that's the kind of nature of reforms, that they're okay with small and medium-sized cities growing, but large cities, they're still trying to control the population of those. So when you say large cities, you're really talking Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Chongqing? Almost, yeah, almost yeah. those three in exclusive, yeah. But right. those are the largest cities, and those are the ones that they are most interested in controlling, and I think those are the ones that are, have the most resonance politically. So mm -hmm. a large protest in Beijing or Shanghai kind of reflects the, 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 the kind of vanguard, if you will, of the Chinese population, and so that, that kind of is more dangerous than a protest in Zibo or, uh, I don't know, your Chinese city of choice. Um, Which is really striking, because even when you say smaller Chinese cities, we might be talking three, four, or five million people. Yeah. And yet, there isn't an they're considered small. Right. There's an uh, anonymous nature to a lot of large cities in China because there are so many of them. And so if it's not at the very top, there are a lot of people in, in Zibo, in um, Shenyang, in all of these cities, and yet they are not kind of – no one think of them as the Chinese city. It doesn't it, – they are anonymous. And so if things go badly in that city – then it doesn't reflect that the Chinese country is, is kind of falling apart. Whereas in a country that just has one city, if that city falls apart, then the kind of the only place that is modern in the country is falling apart. And so I think that the spreading out of these urban populations to lots of cities that are anonymous is, a, is kind of the core political benefit of the Hugo system. And in the beginning of the book, you talk about how in uh, the Jasmine Revolution protests and things. So in Egypt, for example, mm -hmm. because Cairo was the only real big city, yeah. it was also the political center of the country that a protest there meant more than a similar protest would in Kunming in China, even though Kunming might have more people. I'm not sure what Cairo's population <laughs> I is. I think Cairo is larger than Kunming, but right. there are definitely, uh, it definitely is the case that because Cairo is so central to the, to the urban system or the city system of Egypt, that a protest there just matters more politically than, than one in an anonymous provincial capital of China. Right. So again, one of the, one of the big aspects that, of China that first-time visitors to the country, so foreigners coming to China for the first time notice, is the absence of slums mm -hmm. compared to places like India or Brazil or things like other places like that. And compared to other developing countries, China doesn't have slums as we traditionally think mm -hmm. of them. So. Why doesn't China have slums? It's the same policy of migration restrictions. The hukou system kind of incentivizes individuals to move to locales, but only but temporarily, not to move permanently. And in fact, one of the policies that is very important here is that rural people are given land allocations and aren't able to sell those land allocations completely, and so they can't completely sever their ties to the countryside. And so you would imagine in Brazil, if you have some land, you want to move to the city, you sell that land and kind of strike out for your fortune in the big city, and often those people end up in slums. In China, because you don't have that ability to sell off your land, you tend to move only when there are jobs or and to move back to the countryside when you don't have a job because there is still a place for you in the countryside. And in fact, this kind of aspect of the hukou system is really important. It can be seen in the Great Recession, the global financial crisis. And I think... Um, what you actually had was all of these, as Americans stopped buying Chinese-made goods, you had all of these workers lose their jobs in the kind of coastal factories. And by the millions, they returned to the countryside, if not the countryside, like their actual villages, then to the kind of small cities in the interior. So, uh, in other words, you're saying that 
Chinese managed urbanization policies really helped the country get through the Great Recession without suffering the same financial setbacks that the United States did, for example. Yeah, so the, one of the main pieces, uh, every book on China begins with something like, even if economic growth continues, X, Y, and Z are dangerous, with the implication being that if economic growth were to falter, then of course things would politically become unstable. And the, the global financial crisis was this moment when the Chinese economy really was on, a, on the brink. And yet we didn't see massive instability. We did see the beginnings of kind of lots of factories being attacked by workers as their, as their kind of owners disappeared, stopped paying workers. And, but by the millions, they did kind of disperse. And so the hukou system was really important, not only in spreading out urbanization and so kind of structurally making it so that protests would not be as dangerous. They also helped disperse the population so that, again, rather than all of these sparks happening in one place and creating a large fire, you, you kind of spread out across the fields of China. And so that way, they it dispersed discontent. And then, of course, in the end, the regime kind of stimulates the economy by spending lots of money with its fiscal stimulus package. And interestingly, that money is much more, even though people lose their jobs on the coast, the actual direction of the money is to the interior of the country where those migrants have returned to rather than where they lost their jobs in the first place. And I think that, again, shows this kind of interesting political geography of the, of the Chinese state. I think we, we often talk about the political geography of the Chinese state as if it's unique, that it can't be applied to any other country in the world. So I wanted to ask you, what sorts of comparative lessons do you think that we can draw from China's experience of, on the one hand, encouraging urban growth, while on the other hand, preserving political stability? So is China, is, is China an exceptional case, or does it offer an example for other countries? So I think China is always an exceptional case. It is definitely different than other places. It is the, still the largest country in the world. A couple decades from now, Indian specialists will be able to say that maybe, but now it's still, it's still ours. And so I think that there is something that is particular. But it is also the case that China and the hukou system is, has been very effective. And many of the communist states had similar types of policies. So in Vietnam, there is a hokao, apologies to the, those who know actually how to pronounce that, um, the Propiska system in the Soviet Union similarly kind of managed where people lived in the country. But the Chinese example is, is peculiar in many ways, that the Chinese state has industrialized very successfully in kind of managing where that takes place. Other countries have not been able to do so. At the same time, I don't feel like I'm like this book is some kind of handbook for a dictator or something like that, because the, the hukou system involves a level of state capacity and kind of just needs to be there from the beginning in a way that I don't think most countries or most dictatorships could, could kind of manufacture. And so I don't, I think that this, this example is, is an important one to understand the Chinese state. I don't know if it's necessarily an important one to, to kind of point in other directions. What it does say is that these other countries, when we do see instability in urban areas ousting dictatorships, it, it helps us understand why the Chinese state has been so resilient. Great. And I wanted to conclude by asking you, What's the most surprising thing that you came across when you were doing your field research? Or what's, what's something that perhaps I haven't asked about that you think readers of your book or potential readers of your book should know? So one of the, the kind of, I conclude in the, in the book, one of the sections is uh, a reference to Ai Weiwei. Ai Weiwei had this interview, uh, foreign policy asked him in their cities issue about his favorite city, and he said, Twitter is my favorite city. Um, and if you actually follow Ai Weiwei on Twitter, you'll know that that's true. He spends a lot of time there. And in fact, most of us spend a lot of time in front of screens. And so does physical geography matter as much when we are on the internet age and we all can connect regardless of where we are physically? And I think 
that actually there is something about being in a space. Um, and in the United States, recently we've had these kind of street protests about Ferguson and Eric Garner and these other kind of police crime issues or police violence issues, state violence. And I think that there is something still that is very important about, um, about physical location. And I think that, that kind of those protests and the importance of the Arab Spring, I think, just do hammer home that even in this new modern world, even if Twitter is Ai Weiwei's favorite city, that it is not a protest online is not going to have the same power as a protest in a real city. And so I do think that physical geography still matters even in the, the internet age. Great. Well, I'm afraid we've come to the end of our time, but thanks to you, Jeremy, for talking with me today. And thanks and for your questions. Thanks for sharing your book with our listeners.